The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Hazen Huddle gets the airport shuttle as Newcastle score four and show him the door. We wave him off and salute the Magpies a year on from Eddie saying howdy to the Saudis. Elsewhere, United beaten at Villa Park for the first time in living memory. We salute Unai Emery and talk Chelsea Arsenal. Well done, Mikel. And aren't Chelsea fans fickle? All that plus important Liverpool news as they win at Spurs and more in this Totally Football Show. Seventh of November, twenty twenty-two. Listener, in two weeks' time, the World Cup will already have begun. Incredible! But right now, I'm sat here with Daniel Story of the Eye, Joby Makanoff, ex-pro and pundit, and Maram Albana, data journalist for the Athletic. Welcome. Morning, James. Hi, James. Morning to you. Hello, Hello Maram, and, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, lovely to have you on the show. Uh, tell us about what you do. So basically, I work as a data analyst, which means I do all of these pretty visualizations that you see that help writers make their points against all clubs. So I do all sorts of different things. Um, also work on TIFO, pop up um, from time to time and work on videos. So you see me here and there. Indeed. I'm looking forward to hearing you on this show today. We've got lots of lovely questions from you, listener especially if your name is Sasu Haino. Why did Ronaldo get the captain's armband? Has he participated in pressing more in recent games? Mm. Or if your name is Phil, was Joe Willock's knee slide the best this season? Or perhaps if your parents called you at the bridge pod, who asks, could we realistically see the top four teams in the league dramatically change this season to feature Manchester City in three new sides? I mean, possibly so. We'll try and tackle all those questions after a weekend that saw, boom, Unai Emery turn up at Villa and then grabbed their first win at home to Man United in 27 years. Elsewhere, it also brought Arsenal winning at Chelsea to stay top and plunged Chelsea to seventh below uh, Brighton, and Liverpool winning at Spurs with a brace from Mo Salah. Also, Newcastle moved past tottering Tottenham into third place with their win at Saints. Palace are in the top half after downing West Ham. Leeds won a seven-goal stormer with Bournemouth to climb to 12th, and Leicester have reached an exciting 14th place after their third win in four. The bottom three is now Forest Wolves and Saints. Excellent. A weekend full of big results. We're going to begin with the one at Villa. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Watkins, Bailey up with him. Buendia striding forward as well. Still with Ollie Watkins. In towards Jacob Ramsey. Oh, what a goal. Top ends, 3-1. Wow. Aston La Vista, baby. Aston La Vittoria siempre, you might say. Quite the introduction for Villa's new manager, Unai Emery. As the side come up with their first league win over United there since August 1995. Well, Maram, you watch this. Conventionally through TV or through a succession of, you know, data streaming uh, screens? <laughs> um I think a lot of people imagine that I'm watching four screens at once, so yeah. I just leave. I just leave it that. Yes. Okay. What did you yeah. see then? To be honest, from United side, it was a very lethargic lineup that Aston Villa really took advantage of. I think they weren't at their best, and that was both structurally and individually. One of United's biggest weaknesses, I would say, um, even though that Ten Hag has improved their defensive structure, is how they can see transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Unai Emery and transitions are basically bre- bread and butter. And I, from a, from from the get go, they really exploited United's back line and. The way that they seem to drag Lyndon off against his better judgment at times really create chances for them. So I think it was a really great game from Aston Villa, very poor one from United's perspective. Villa had a terrible record against United. Of course, Emery himself didn't. His Villarreal beat Man United in the Europa League final, what, 16 months ago. But what what does all this mean uh, for the Villa support, who, aside from West Brom collapsing, have not had too much to celebrate of late? Well, we're joined now by Dan Bardell. Dan, happy days. Very happy. I mean, the last time Villa beat Manchester United at home, I was nine. So I'm right. now, now 37, and at the end of the game, I mean, this is this isn't a high bar to set for your life. But my dad turned around to me and said, "I can die happy now." 
which wow. I thought was quite a low bar for your life. But, it, you know, the Villa fans have wanted to beat Manchester United at Villa Park for a long, long time because it has been so long. And not only did they beat them, I, I thought they totally outclassed them. It, it was such an enjoyable watch. And actually, I was I was actually found myself fascinated through the whole game by, by the way Villa played because I thought Unai Emery's tactics at, at times were mesmerising. What was mesmerising about them? Just, just the rotations and the, and the setup that they had on the ball, and then it was a completely different setup off the ball. The the, the front players of, of Watkins and Bailey, when Villa didn't have the ball, they'd be they'd be almost so wide they'd stay forward. The rest of the team would come back, and Bailey and Watkins would pull so wide. And the Manchester United centre backs, they almost didn't know whether to go with them, whether to sit in, and I think it caused them problems. And then Jacob Ramsey, when Villa suddenly were in transition, would, would pick up the ball in all kinds of space. And that, and that was the biggest thing for me. I've, I've always sat at Villa Park and lambasted the, the lack of movement and wondered why Villa players can't find space. And after three days of coaching with Unai Emre, Villa players were just pick, picking the ball up in, in extreme space and had space to drive into and, and got through Manchester United with ease. And completely deserved that victory and it, it was just such a good performance I, I think every player that played for Villa yesterday I don't think anyone was below a, a 7 out of 10 and as I say after 3 days with Unai Emery I think that's so so impressive mm. it, it was just 3 days with Unai Emery and there had been a big win under Aaron Danks in his first game in charge as well do, it, do you think this might just be the that kind of ongoing sense of liberation after the, the previous regime? It's probably a, a valid point because I, I came on here and was very excited after after Villa beat Brentford and then and then a week later I was, I was down in the dumps after they'd been thumped by Newcastle. But I do think because of the team it was that they beat, it, it just it just felt different to that for that four 0 against Brentford. It, I felt like I was watching a top class elite manager on on the sidelines. If you watched Unai Emery through the game as well, you know he, he's not non-stop coaching through that whole game he, he never sat down once he's talking his players through the game the, the players seemed to be engaged in, in in what he was saying they were, they were determined they wanted to follow his game plan and there was multiple game plans through that game depending depend on what the situation was during the game how the game was going Villa would, would change system and, and change patterns all the way through the game and you could see it was the manager that, that was driving that so I think for the first time in a long time, I think Villa fans probably can be genuinely excited because this is a manager, really, that I don't think Villa have had any right to, to pick up. I think it's an ambitious appointment. And after one game, you know, there's going to be downs as well. There'll be games where th- things don't work. But having a manager that's so adaptable and that has plans for different games, that that was a plan to play Manchester United, the way, the way they pressed, the way they lined up both on and off the ball. That was a plan for Manchester United. Now they've got Manchester United again. On Thursday at Old Trafford in the Cup, so I think it might be a slight, slightly different plan. But it wouldn't surprise me if we saw something completely different on Sunday against Brighton because it's different opposition. And, and that's what Unai Emery does. He, he changes his system and changes his plans depending on who, who, who his team's playing. And I just love that flexibility because under Steven Gerrard for a year, I've watched Villa be so, so rigid, go, going nowhere, just just feeling like they don't do anything in the, in the week on the training ground. I evidently could see what Villa had worked on in the training ground on this game on Sunday. Wow. Uh, best wishes to your father, you know, to tell him to stick around because there's going to be more <laughs> delights uh, on the way. There is a line of, of thought, indeed, that Arsenal's current runaway success is built very much on groundwork laid by Emery, who brought through a lot of the young stars who are now lighting up their season. With, with some of the, the talent, the young talent that Villa have got, that's, that's quite an exciting prospect. Yeah, Villa have got a lot of a lot of young players out on loan. I mean, you saw you saw the impact of it had on Jacob Ramsey in, in one game. He's been out the team the last couple of weeks. wasn't really firing under under Steven Gerrard at, at all. But he's he's been given a role that completely suited him on Sunday, and he was he was arguably man of the match. I mean, his finish for the third goal was absolutely spectacular. That that's not an easy finish, and and the the way he arrowed it into the top corner. I think you could see by De Gea's reaction, he he couldn't believe it. There's a lot of good that has gone on behind the scenes at Villa over the last few years since the new owners have come in. They've put a lot of money into that academy. They've put a lot of money into the infrastructure in the in the training ground. And you know, in, in the next few years, you, you want to see your fruits of your of your labour come out with that. So. Emre gave obviously various Arsenal players that their debuts. I think Arteta's come in and, and harnessed what he's done, and that's taken time. So this will probably take time for, for Villa as well. But I do just feel that they finally got a manager, and it's, it's a manager that's united the fan base as well. 
I mean, for the first time probably in, for, in forever, three, about two, three weeks ago, I felt like Steven Gerrard had united the fan base because every Villa fan what wanted him gone didn't believe that he was he was the man for the job. But now I feel everyone, everyone's got a manager that they want to get behind, that they believe in him and that they think he's the right appointment. And, and sometimes things like that, it'll just give him a, a little bit more time because the Villa fans can be impatient at, at times. But f- from what I've heard and what I've seen, they're all backing Unai Emre and they're excited for the future. Wow, okay. Man United again on Thursday then in the League Cup, the EFL third round. Cracking stuff, Dan, and uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Dan Bardell, yeah, quite the game for Jacob Ramsey, the fourth player only in Premier League history to get a goal, an assist and an own goal in a single Premier League match. The other three being... Uh, did Michael Owen score a goal and then got once? No, Maybe I've got... Assist. No. It's a tricky Rooney. question. Yeah, Rooney's in there. Yeah, yeah Rooney's cool. I remember that one. Yeah, Gareth Bale and Kevin Davis. OK, let's talk about United then. First of all, Maram Sasuhaina says, why did Ronaldo get the captain's armband? Has he participated in pressing more in recent games? As a United fan, I detect yourself. What do you, what do you make of this? I just think... Cristiano Ronaldo has had some difficulties adjusting to Ten Hag's system and his demands. I do think that he's an important presence, whether you like it or not, in the dressing room and on the pitch. His contribution, as where he is right now, of a striker of his age and his quality, should be a player that can stay in the box and really attack crosses and try to make great runs from that. But he uh, drops too deep, demands too much of the ball, which means it kind of forces United's, United's midfield or forwards to like funnel the ball through him, even though it's not the most efficient option. And during this game, he, he was not really able to outwing Mings and he really struggled to connect with a number, a number of crosses United sent to the penalty area. And I think when he plays, United change the way that they play, whether that, and not in a good way. They, they, they kind of always want to get the ball to him and they start attempting crosses and which Den Hag himself admitted was uh, bad. <laughs> so about the armband, um, I don't know the thinking behind that, if I'm being honest. I really don't know. Maybe it's a way to try to reinforce spirits and, and maybe remind him of his role that he can still contribute off the pitch as well to a lot of the youngsters that are coming up, especially Ganacho that has just played in the Europa League and Premier League as well, that finds him like a great inspiration. I think I think maybe that was the approach. But I, I don't see him as... A permanent captain whatsoever. That's mm. just my personal opinion, though. Yeah, he, he might not yeah. see himself as a permanent captain at, at Old Trafford either. Joby? Yeah, I just wanted to chime in on that because we've had the debate about his role as a player and, and whether he can still carry out the, the press that Ten Hag clearly wants. I think there's a bigger uh, point to this and it's about your culture, your environment. You know, clearly for me, whoever it was, whether it was Cristiano Ronaldo or, or anybody else, to sort of get up walk off like we saw, you know, recently, and then to be handed a captaincy a matter of weeks later, I think it sends out a really bad message to all the other players at that football club. You know, you've got David De Gea in goal. You know, I'm not sitting here saying that there's a team full of captains to to give the armband to, but I certainly feel there's a way to carry yourself. And captain the club is an honour, you know, especially a club as big as Manchester United. And for me, you have to act in a certain way to get that. Or at least if you have made a mistake, I'm not sitting here saying that I've never made mistakes or other players haven't, but you kind of got to earn that trust and, and respect back. Mm. And I just don't think there's been enough time elapsed since that to then be right, there you go, you're the captain. And then going on to the issue of his presence, and it does affect the way they play. You know, Ten Hag really clear about how many crosses they were putting in the box and how much is that of Ronaldo saying, listen, I'm in the box, you make sure you cross it. And because of his presence and maybe some of the players around him sort of bow into to his demands rather than what the manager's instructions really were. Mm. This result coming after the Thursday night game in which Man United's 1-0 against Real Sociedad in the Europa League was not enough to see them through in first place from their group, which means they're in the playoff round draw and could face... Teams such as Juventus, Barcelona, ooh, and Ajax, Ten Hag's old, old club. The draw will be made later on this Monday, so look out for that one. Excellent. Lots more to discuss. And next up, ooh, it's Magpie Love. 
Hi, I'm Adam Crafton, and I'm the host of The Athletic's new documentary series, Away From Home. We've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk through the Champions League group stage. They've had to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first bomb, you never forget. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League odyssey. It's not only about football now, it's about to show that we are fighting. I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself, hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. They killed him here. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Almiron, Longstaff, Wilson. Look at Almiron, still going, held up, but finishing. There's just no stopping him at the moment. Rob M says it would be great if you could give some love to third-place Newcastle on the show rather than just have them as an afterthought at the end simply because they aren't part of the so-called Big Six. One defeat all season, reminds us, Rob, and blowing away teams week after week. Latest victims indeed were Southampton, with dramatic consequences, we hear, for the Southampton manager, Ralph Hasenhuttle. All right, first of all then, for Rob M, who's bringing that magpie love? They are a fantastically complete football team at the moment. I think they are slightly benefiting from the fact that in a very, very, very different case, I should say, before to caveat this, but in the same way that Leicester went to teams where, where, for example, Southampton played brilliantly against Arsenal because they knew that Arsenal were top of the league at that point and they knew it was going to be a tough game. I think there's still a sense, for no good reason, that teams are underestimating just how good this Newcastle team is. And therefore, they can kill you on the break they can dominate you with possession if they choose to and they find ways to win and they find ways to win that teams are currently incapable of stopping and I say there's no good reason for them not to notice it because this has been going on for a while you know how I think clicks into a year in charge this week Mm. since the beginning of 2022 there's only City, Liverpool, Arsenal and Spurs with more points and Spurs have played extra games so you know they are here to stay they're not they're certainly not going to get any worse because of the you know the the money that's behind them, and Eddie Howe is doing an absolutely magnificent job. It was no secret that Newcastle approached Unai Emery. It was reported that Antonio Conte and Brendan Rodgers both turned down that job, and yet they ended up with Eddie Howe as a kind of backup option. And and I suspect at the time they saw him as a sort of stepping stone to, you know, the real deal in inverted commas. And yet he is proving himself to be the real deal. You know, we, we worried about him being able to organise a defence and they've got the best defence in the league. Mm. We worried about this, the, the, whether the players they were buying were, were also stepping stone players and yet they've become stars. And, and he's getting a tune out of everyone he inherited as well. Well, indeed. They were second bottom when he took over a year ago. And now they're third in the table. Five points behind City, six from Arsenal, both of whom have actually played a game less than them. But still, Joby, of all the... The players who he's getting a tune out of, Almiron is the the one who most catches the eye, I guess, with the four goals in four games now, and, and what goals he's been scoring. What has he What has he done? How has he unleashed the Paraguayans' power? Well, first of all, I think he's probably um, the absolute, I suppose, epitome of the turnaround at, at Newcastle. You know, sometimes. Um, you know, heavily criticised for his end product. Listen, he was always very industrious, always worked incredibly hard, but just didn't have that end product. You can see the type of goals that he's scoring now. And I think what he's done, he's given him a system and a a platform to go and express himself. And as a wide player and an attacking player, I think playing behind uh, Kieran Trippier is really helping him as well. But again, once you start that, I suppose, run um, in terms of that confidence, for me, he just looks like a player playing at that absolute top of his game he's trying things now that he wouldn't have tried whether they're you know shots that are coming off taking people on dribbling with the ball but also his decision making has been absolutely fantastic you throw Joe Linton into that mix of you know seeing something in a player and actually then going but how do I get the best out of them and for me that is you know really what he's done superbly well and Ken recruitment I feel like you know the hierarchy at Newcastle trusts Eddie Howe it's not a scattergun approach it's not right we've got some 
money. Let's just go and buy whoever we want. They've got to come in, fit into that system. You know, Bruno Guimaraes is a, a prime example of that as well. Um, uh, yeah, Almiron's been absolutely magnificent. And it, it, as a player, you want to just, every time you're out there, give me the ball. I'm going to go and make something happen. You know, he's clearly got the confidence of the manager and, and all the players, and he's been absolutely sensational. So I'm very much, you know, in the, the Newcastle loving and certainly the Eddie Howe loving because he probably wasn't, you know, as we've already discussed, first favourite to go in there. And there was a few question marks and he's also had to go in and, and prove himself as have a lot of those players and they've done it very well. Yeah, the work he's put in on Joe Willock's knee slide, as, as Phil was mentioning, has, has really paid off as well. We, you were impressed with that. I just got something about the knee slides. I've got to be honest, in terms of goal celebrations, they're mm. just getting so repetitive and so boring. And I want to go back to the Oberfemi Martins days, you know, somersaults mm. and all that sort of thing. And also from a personal right. point of view, I hate him because I tried to do one very late in my career. Right. I was about 39 at Leighton Orient. Didn't go well. So the guys that can do them well, I'm a little bit jealous of as well, I've got to say, James. Right. They're harder than they, than they look, I imagine. Absolutely. It's all about the pace going into them. And then you've got to really put a little bit extra into the slide to make sure you carry on through. I sort of stopped halfway, did a front tumble oh. and it didn't look very good yeah. very embarrassing mm. all right then meanwhile coming a cropper on the saints bench was ralph hasenhuttle apparently uh, word from theathletic.com on sunday was that the club had made the decision to sack the pretty long-serving manager uh, jacob tanswell joins us now on the southampton beat for the aforementioned the athletic jacob uh, first of all is this now confirmed and why now Yes, so uh, it's been confirmed eight minutes ago. Uh, official uh, statement came out that he and his assistant, Richard Kitzblicker, will be leaving uh, and Ruben Sellers, the assistant, will take over for Sheffield Wednesday game. Uh, it's been coming for a while. I think the plan was always to muddle through to the World Cup break, like a mini pre-season almost. But the man of his defeat against Newcastle, losing 4-1, uh, the way they imploded again, uh, second half, uh, accelerated the change. And it was clear that straight after the final whistle that that would be his final game in charge. Who are they looking at long term, Jacob? Uh, they are looking at a number of managers. Uh, they've been interested in Thomas Frank. They've been interested in Roberto De Zerbi before he went to Brighton. They were admirers of Bruno Large before he went to Wolves. So they've been looking at a number of managers for the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, mm. But the one they're looking at currently is Nathan Jones from Luton. Um, he will be a surprise decision given his experience at Stoke, but he's done a superb job at Luton, hasn't he? So it will be a bit outside the box, but Southampton have shown history of thinking outside the box, so it could prove dividends. Jacob, you're not on our Zoom call. Otherwise, you would have seen the extraordinary contortion that passed across uh, Daniel Story's face when you said Nathan Jones. Daniel, would you like to would you like to verbalise that look? I mean, the Stoke thing is an issue for me. It sets off an alarm bell. But then Eddie House. What off was an the alarm. Stoke thing? Just for anyone who hasn't so he, been following. So he the he was at Luton, did brilliantly well. Went to Stoke, did brilliantly badly, and then went back to Luton, is doing brilliantly well again. Uh, and, and the alarm bell that initially set off there was, that sounds like Eddie Howe going from Bournemouth to Burnley to Bournemouth, but he is now doing brilliantly at Newcastle, so maybe mm. we can carry it that. But my big issue with Southampton, and it's not Nathan Jones's fault, is they're the, they're the one club towards the bottom of the table, probably other than Forrest, who I think, if they replaced their manager, would be unlikely to get a manage, a coach of better aptitude, and I think that's probably true. There's certainly a... I, I don't disagree with sacking Hasenhutl. I think it's 17 points in 25 games, which is not good enough. And therefore, everything was probably going to be a gamble. But when Jacob went through those names and sort of said deserving, I thought, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I like that. And, and then I heard Nathan Jones. I just thought... My initial thought was, that's, that's a heck of a gamble. And it is a heck of a gamble, but then... They've got a young squad, so everything's a gamble this season. I mean, Jacob may or may not agree, but everything feels like a gamble. Slumpton have tried to think ahead of the curve for a number of years now uh, because of the, the lack of budget, the lack of resource. They've been swimming against the tide in some respects. So they're trying to come up with these plans that you know create them a sustainable long-term business and keep Slumpton in the Premier League ultimately. So the fact that they're trying to now go for the teenager route of uh, buying young players, selling them for a profit, hoping they reap the, the fruits of their labour whilst they're still at the club um, and continue to do that throughout the next five, six years um, is a bold uh, strategy and they need a manager that's going to buy into that. They can't have a manager, a Jose Mourinho type who, or an Antonio Conte type who relies on experienced players or needs 
to have the complete trust in those players. They need to be able to throw these young players. For example, Romeo Lavia started the first game against Spurs and now Ralph had built the team completely around him, both in and out of possession. So you need a manager who, like Nathan Jones, perhaps, who will trust these young players and knows that it's not going to impact on his job security if things go haywire from time to time. All right. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us with that breaking news today. And look forward to uh, hearing the latest developments as they come. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Jacob Tanswell. Who's actually in charge of Southampton? I'm a, I'm, I think a couple of owners behind on this. They've got this Serbian owner who... Their, their aim, I think, is... It, it's Sport Republic is the company. And their aim is to create this kind of, you know, as is the modern way, this kind of... Red Bull style framework of clubs into which Southampton I think would be the key club and the problem is is that that takes a heck of a long time and uh, relies on your main club staying in the Premier League because it's it, it, Jake's absolutely right about buying the young players and that's something Forrest tries to do as well buy young keep some resale value and then if you go down you at least make up some of the shortfall from the broadcasting revenues but it's also really hard to get out of the championship once you got relegated with young players. Mm, indeed so. Saints there. Newcastle, meanwhile, on the right end of that scoreline, moving up to third place, as we mentioned, and City and Arsenal above them. Still one point between them. City beating a 10-man City, indeed, beating Fulham this weekend, while Arsenal, in a big game, went to Stamford Bridge and won 1-0. The latest test this of whether we can trust the Gunners. And once again, they came through it with flying colours. Moram. Yeah, um, I thought Arsenal dominated that game pretty much for the whole 90 minutes. Uh, it was really impressive how they controlled the ball, both in and out of possession. I think they shut them out. In the second half, I think, um, Chelsea only had 0.05 xG um, out of all the shocks that they created. So even if they did get the ball, they weren't really able to create much with it. And I think Arsenal just fantastic, honestly. Um, and... How they were penetrating the final third, how they were able to really just create chances with Jesus dropping deep, Martin Alley cutting inside. It's just a really, just like, really threatening dynamic to, that's really difficult to defend against, I think, and they've mastered it quite well over this season. Yeah, I've got to agree uh, with Moran there. I mean, for me, two teams at complete opposite ends of the development spectrum. I think if you look at Arsenal, incredibly well coached. I think every member of that team not only knows his job, but he knows the man's next to him's job, the man in front of him, the man behind him. And they're just so slick. I think in terms of statement performances and victories going to Stamford Bridge and being so comfortable, everyone's waiting for this bubble to burst, you know, and I've got to be honest, I can't see it burst anytime soon with the way that they're going. I mean, the only question might be if they don't have that First 11, if they get big injuries to key players, you know, is that depth enough? At the moment, that doesn't seem to be happening. And again, I'll flip that across to Chelsea, who look like a team who don't know what they're doing individually and collectively. He's had some real big decisions along the way, Mikel Arteta. You know, and I think obviously Aubameyang and his role in this game, or lack of role, you know, is a real uh, key part of that. You know, big decision at the time. Do I get rid of my top goal scorer? But I think what that does, and we go back to Ten Hag and Ronaldo, that makes a real statement in that dressing room. You know, the players in there go, right, he's the boss, he's in control, what he says goes. And I think from that moment, you know, there's been a real upward curve really in trajectory. And, you know, I've been very, very impressed with Arteta and, you know, the rest of the team. Very, very smooth and look a threat every time they go out on that, that football pitch. Who's the key player that Arteta's built this around? Is it is there one individual, Moran, would you say? I wouldn't say it's one individual. I think what's really made Arsenal click this season is... So, their structure out of possession was the first thing that Arteta decided to focus on. How they pressed out the ball, how they moved when they were defending, how they maintained a really compact like defensive structure, really like minimal spaces between the lines. Um, what we saw improvement on 
half of last season and this season especially is how they move the ball and how they create chances and I think that's how he's collectively used players to give them freedom of the ball especially like uh, players like Granit Xhaka how many rotations have developed between players like Martinelli Zinchenko when he's not been injured and Xhaka and how they've made these little triangles one of them running into the forward line one of them holding width so they've really been able to create danger from in multiple ways but I would think what's made them great is that they're able to create this danger consistently. I think having Gabriel Jesus as a striker probably really changed things around for them because comparing Gabriel Jesus to Lacazette previously, both operate in a similar sort of way where they like to drop deep and collect the ball and also like to shoot and score. But the difference between them is just the athleticism and the movement of Gabriel Jesus and how he's able to shift from one side of the pitch to another and how he's able to carry the ball, dribble with it and create chances has really offered a really new dynamic to um, how they attack, I would say. Magnificent. Daniel, I know you, you've written about how multidimensional they are as well. They can beat you in different ways depending on what's required. Yeah, that was that is always the first thing I look for in a a kind of fresh faced title challenger is are they winning matches in different ways? If 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 they're winning three 0 every week, most supporters would think, well, that's no problem, and and that's that's clearly the case while it's happening. But it's how are they coping with adversity? How are they coping with opponents who set up in different ways? How are they coping when an opponent scores first or equalizes against them? And you look through the fixtures, and they're, they're pretty much doing everything. You know, they've won they've won shootouts against. Liverpool 3-2 they've they've won games 1-0 they've ground games out they've 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 thrashed teams like Forest and maybe Fulham 3-0 they are doing it in so many different ways and the the most impressive thing about that is that it makes you completely forget that this is the youngest team in the Premier League which it still is you know that, hmm. that the oldest player in that defense yesterday was Alexander Zinchenko who was 25 and was new this summer the oldest player in the forward line is Gabriel Jesus who's 25 and was new this summer that's deeply deeply impressive that we're not talking about Arsenal kind of halfway through a cycle we're talking them potentially already peaking at this age Mm. crikey as for Graham Potter's Chelsea as mentioned before they're now below Brighton and we're already at the booze stage with his new club (laughs) that's extraordinary I mean he said the poor chap's only just come in his choice of course but a little bit of patience required you'd imagine Joby no you would imagine, James, but is that the reality at Chelsea? Um, and it's funny because you always hear, oh, it's the owner, you know, under Abramovich, he'd be the one who'd always want to, you know, change things too quickly. And at times you think the fans are sort of like, hang on a minute. But now it seems like the other way around where maybe they're so used to, one, the success they've had, but two, the sort of hiring and firing policy. But, you know, I certainly feel he needs to be given times. I talk about... Now, the development in a squad, and he certainly had that time at Brighton, but that mm. is the difference at a Brighton. You get that time. Having said that, Arsenal, big, big club, Arteta was given time. You know, it, there were periods in that that weren't going very, very well, and they stood by him. So I'm certainly sure that they will give him time to address at the moment. I've got to be honest, they just look like a, a collection of individuals out on the pitch rather than a team. Mm. I also think that, um, to be honest, looking at Graham Potter's side at Brighton and looking at the squad that he's inherited in Chelsea are two different things. Um, he really depends on these a high level of technicality that he demands from his players, um, especially his forwards. I'm not saying that they lack that. It's just it takes a bit of adjustment to actually get the tune that he wants out of them. And... <laughs> The fact that there's been accumulating injuries has not really helped them find the right answer, I think. And obviously, relentless schedule. But um, you need time and you need the transfer window. (laughs) Right. Graham Potter, yeah. Okay. Well, relentless schedule. Uh, We'll see them take on Man City this midweek in that League Cup. City, who had a victory 2-1 against Fulham at the weekend... Took a 95th minute penalty, though, to seal the three points. City down to 10 men after Jacques Ancelo's first half red card. They still had about, what, over 70% possession in this game, remarkably enough, as they notched up their 15th straight victory at the Etihad in all competitions. Cancelo thus will be suspended for that Carabao Cup clash with Chelsea. I imagine we'll see one or two changes to both lineups. 
Interesting time for the League Cup to wade in with its third round. Yeah, it's going to be reserve 11s stick. Mm. Although for Chelsea and Manchester City, with the amount of rotation we've had this season anyway, maybe the cup competitions almost benefit out of it in that there's no real such thing as first team and reserve team this season. We're seeing managers making two or three or four changes every game anyway. So maybe we'll just see another version of that. On that note, no Alexander Mitrovic in the Fulham lineup as a precaution because he's been nursing an ankle injury, which a lot of people feel related to the fact that he's about to head off to Qatar for the, the World Cup. Beyond this midweek, next weekend in the Premier League, the final round before the World Cup starts, do you think there's going to be a lot of that? Yes, I do. Uh, mm. It's, um, I mean, the, the, the standout one for me, and I think we discussed it on last week's show, is, is Raul Jimenez, who has not played for Wolves in a few weeks and has returned back to Mexico to do a kind of training camp of his own to get fit. But he's getting fit for Mexico. He's not getting fit for Wolves because he wants to make the World Cup. Um, it, 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 it sort of feels like it's a bit of an unspoken, sort of deliberately unspoken truth at the moment in that no one wants to pretend that the football they're watching is a group of players, some of which you may be playing at 70% or 80%, either deliberately or subconsciously. But it's inevitable that that must be the case, particularly next weekend. I think when you've seen the amount of injuries of late, it is absolutely going to be something that's going to be in the players' minds. There's no two ways about it. That's what happens when you put a World Cup in the middle of a season. You know, there is that as the, the time elapses and it draws closer to, you know, that big event. And we're talking about the biggest tournament in the world, you know, so players are going to be, you know, every time that ball's there for a 50-50, oh, am I really going to go for this and risk being out? And it might be that little strain that you've got that normally you would play on with at this stage of the season and try and get through, you know, in the hope that you don't get injured. But if you did, you know, you'd be out for two, three weeks maybe and, and then you get back after that. You do that now and you miss a whole World Cup. You know, mm. clearly it is something that is the players' mind, in the players' minds and... I've got to be honest, you know, it's hard to blame them, you know, with what's round the corner. You do want people giving 100%, yes. But, you know, I think for the niggles and, as I say, those challenges are a little bit on the edge. You might see a few jumping out um, that last weekend of fixtures, that's for sure. Indeed. I must admit, it hasn't really dawned on me yet that in a fortnight's time, we'll already be in a World Cup. I haven't got my wall chart sorted out, nothing. Uh, I know you're going to be heading off in a week, Daniel, so you're painfully aware of it. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've spent the last four days doing 600 word previews for 32 countries. And ooh. I believe me, I know the World Cup's coming now. Who's your favourite, Daniel? <laughs> who's going to win? I mean, Brazil are going to win because I can't argue, argue with Natalie Jedra because she's so right. confident. I couldn't I couldn't burst that balloon for her. But yeah, I think they are going to win. My main takeaway, or not that now is the time to talk about it, but England's group is far, far harder than people realise. It's the only group in the tournament in which every country is ranked in the top 20 in the world rankings. England, USA, Iran, Iran and Wales. And Wales. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's it's classic England to think, well, obviously we top that group, but it's harder than people think. OK. We'll be doing special World Cup previews the week leading up to the World Cup for people like me who are still a bit foggy on what on earth's about to happen. Nice. Oh, speaking of podcasts, to mention the Totally Football Show European edition will be out with you Tuesday lunchtime. A lot to discuss from this weekend. Jared Piquet's Farewell, the Olympic in France, big derbies in Italy. Mm. Also, the Champions League and Europa League draws. And also, we'll be hearing from Joey Durso about the remarkable new Shakhtar Donetsk uh, documentary, which The Athletic has made, Athletic embedded uh, with the side from Ukraine throughout their Champions League group stage campaign. That is actually out now. And in case you're curious to know a little bit more, straight after I say goodbye to everybody, we're going to finish off today with a little clip from it. Uh, Also out uh, on Monday is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, talking about all sorts of things, probably also the fact that you've had 37 games already played in WSL this season. Not a single match has been drawn. Hmm. But still to come on this edition of the Totally Football Show, we're going to talk Spurs-Liverpool and the other things from this weekend. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. 
Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. At the Bridge Pod, hello, says, could we realistically see the top four teams in the league dramatically change this season to feature Manchester City and three new sides? Huh. Well, last season it was City, Liverpool, Chelsea and Spurs. We already have two new teams out of three then because... Newcastle and uh, and Arsenal breaking in there. Spurs, every chance of falling out of the current top four. They've only had one victory in their last four matches in the Premier League, uh, the latest defeat coming Sunday in the late game against Liverpool. Uh, I was talking to a Spurs fan beforehand who was talking about Liverpool's travel sickness, but how they were about to visit Dr Tottenham. How, how, how prophetic his words proved. Yeah, I mean, this feels like the one game of the weekend that if you hadn't seen it and were asked to to think about how it might have gone when you saw mm. when the goals were scored, you'd have been probably be able to write a fairly serviceable 500-word match report based purely on those goal times. Well, alone. I didn't see it brilliantly, so let me have a go, Daniel. Yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. so I'm going to guess that Spurs lost the first half convincingly. They did. Right. Did Liverpool fade at the end and Spurs they rallied did. Yeah, and almost pulled yes. off a... There was a flurry of late chances, probably. I may have seen yeah, that bit correct. on Sunday Night Highlights, but yeah. <laughs> yeah you, but yes, it's. I mean, you look at Tottenham's last six first halves since beating Eintracht Frankfurt, and it's it's nil 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 two nil one nil one nil one nil two. It's um it's a theme, uh, and what? Why is that? Uh, I think. I mean, I'm I'm educated guessing here, but I think partly it's set from the system or the style that Conte certainly initially imposed, which was to be kind of circumspect in possession, to so try and soak up some pressure and then hit on the counter-attack. And then came these kind of accusations or suspicions that that's what Tottenham were doing. And Antonio Conte was very quick to say, uh, we are not a counter-attacking team, yada, yada. Which has now left them in a situation where it feels like he's, he's asking them to not be a counter-attacking team, but they're not very good with the ball at creating chances. They were actually better playing on the counter-attack. And... Um, yeah, and then after half time, presumably comes a, a a very passionate team talk, and Tottenham try and take advantage. But mm. is it Conte's fault though that Eric Dyer had that header back to his keeper? No, it isn't. But then that's the law of averages. If you haven't scored in six first halves, then you're a you're certainly not going to be leading at any point at half time, and you're probably not going to be drawing if a defender makes a mistake. It's not his fault for that instant, but managers set the tone for how a team plays and you have to account for mistakes made and yes it was a it was a rotten mistake but Tottenham had also made a, a kind of mistake of system for the first goal and were already behind and were left chasing the game and therefore defenders were maybe panicking a little bit it all plays into that it's not just one individual mistake all right uh, Liverpool meantime are not collapsing anymore in fact look at this they've won six of their last eight including victories against Manchester City, Ajax and Napoli midweek, who hadn't lost a single game before that. And now they've got their first away win in the Premier League. Mo Salah is back scoring, getting a brace in this game. What, what's happened there? Is it, has he moved position? No, I think certainly from my point of view, watching as a, a Liverpool fan, um, mm. I mean, the game itself, I was a bit worried going into, I've got to be honest. I mean, if we'd have lost that, you know, you're looking at, a 13-point gap to fourth, which even at this stage of the season, I think would have been really difficult to to overhaul. I felt like Spurs actually really helped us out with that lack of attacking intent in that first half. And on the flip side of that, I thought we really attacked the game. Darwin Nunes in particular, you know, down that left-hand side, was getting out and getting in that channel for fun, really. And it enabled Liverpool to get on the front foot. Again, you know, Liverpool have conceded a lot of goals first as well this season so I think it really was a matter of, of going out there and and being aggressive and listen Salah was 
creating opportunities. He, he did have chances and they just weren't going in. I think sometimes you have those runs and, you know, I'd be the first to say he probably hasn't been in the form we've seen, but he's got 14 in, in 20 games. It's ridiculous, you know, his numbers. I think we've probably been spoilt by his numbers over the years and that expectation on him. But I just felt like the tempo was better. I think the win against Napoli in midweek was absolutely huge for the confidence, you know, and I think the Champions League itself has been the one sort of silver lining, apart from that first game against Napoli, that's kind of kept kept Liverpool going, really. But, yeah, I think if we can get a positive result against Southampton and, and put ourselves in a, a decent position going into, you know, the break after the start that Liverpool have made this season, um, it won't be looking as bad as it did, you know, a couple of weeks ago. I think you look at those results against Forest and Leeds, that's still the one question, you know, maybe that, that one or two games that we're just not quite where we need to be. Uh, but even in those games, chances to win them. But um, no, big, big win. I think towards the end of the season, we could look back on this and could prove a real pivotal one for that top four race. Yeah, Joby, though, back-to-back defeats in your last two games against bottom three sides and look where Southampton are. Right. <laughs> I know, but we're moving past that now, James, aren't are we? We okay. just said we've had a, a much a much better yeah. week. So, um, you know, Sorry, Nathan yeah. Jones, new manager bounce. Yeah. <laughs> Liverpool then seven points now off the top four, a position currently occupied by uh, their opponents on Sunday, Spurs. Good news for them. Dejan Kulusevski is back and immediately having an impact in that second half. Spurs do have their tactical issues. Um, I would just say that the tactical gap between Kane and Son and then Richarlison and Kulusevski from all of their other forwards is so massive that when they are out injured, they do struggle to attack. And it really exacerbates the already not very potent attacking system that they have under, under Conte. Very good point. Uh, Son, the latest in the uh, long series of injuries that's blighted uh, Tottenham's season, uh, currently doing his best to to be ready for South Korea for the World Cup. Well, six wins from their last eight for Liverpool now, but uh, some potentially quite disruptive news actually breaking literally as we record this, and that's that Fenway Sports Group have decided to put the club up for sale. That's right, Liverpool up for sale. As yet, we haven't had any further details about who and why and how and how much and all those things, but the place, as ever, to get all the details on on that earlier than anywhere else is theathletic.com. Right, next up, on to the rest of the Premier League weekend. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Well, lots of other big games that happened this weekend. There was that mad 4-3 game between Leeds and Bournemouth, Leicester beating Everton, Brighton's victory at Wolves and Forest 2, Brentford 2, which, Daniel, you were at. The Leeds game, what logical, sensible conclusions can you draw from that whirlwind of uh, Ellen Road madness? I was was tempted to ask you to write your second 500-word match report, James, because this is another one where it's just two teams completely... Already this early in the season, having a type that they, for better and worse, are unable to escape. Um, And at some point, particularly for Leeds, you wonder if they're better off embracing it and just accepting that there are going to be these mad, chaotic matches in which they slump and don't look like they'll ever score again and certainly Mm. look like conceding and then can score two or three goals in a quick succession. Right. Where does Um, that come from, though? I think... Jesse Marsh struggles 
to when Leeds have the ball, I think they struggle to create chances. They look quite lethargic. They look quite narrow. They're not really using the width properly. So he's brought in Crescencio Somerville, mm. and he said, "Well, if we look to kind of almost just get make the game a bit of a bun fight, then." We have young attacking players, particularly those also I can bring off the bench, who can just create this element of chaos that an opponent can't deal with. I, they, I think they were fortunate to beat Liverpool. I think they probably weren't fortunate to beat Bournemouth in the last half hour, but that's because Bournemouth, are, for the second week in a row, have thrown away a two-goal lead by trying mm. to sit on what they have, uh, which they aren't capable of doing particularly. I, I mean, the defining point of this game is that Mark Travers in goal versus Neto in goal for Bournemouth is... Such a huge, huge difference. Um, Neto ranks among the top goalkeepers in the Premier League for number of goals conceded against expectation. Travers is by some distance bottom of the Premier League. He's been very unfortunate that he's he's played Liverpool, City, uh, Tottenham, and, and Arsenal in there. But yeah, they they give up big chances, and if you sit back and give up big chances, eventually any opponent in the Premier League will score against you. Right. It's crazy to think of a world three weeks ago when I was still unaware of Crescencio Somerville. And now, there he is, scoring for the third game in a row. Wilfred Nonto, uh, the next name to get excited about. Youngest goal scorer already for Italy back in the summer in their uh, game against Germany. And looking <laughs> none too shabby here. Hey, what a pairing that would be. Anyway, uh, let's move on to... Oh, Brighton, their 3-2 win over... Wolves. The Seagulls are sixth now. Back-to-back wins. They were facing a Wolves side, and a Wolves side even reduced to 10 men after Nelson Semedo was shown red for a a professional foul. I didn't see this game because it was on at three on Saturday, and we're not allowed to watch those matches. But I have seen that Yulan Lopetegui has now been confirmed as new Wolves manager. That sounds like good news for Wolves. Yes, insofar as A, he is a capable coach and B, maybe even more importantly than that, he's a a Georges Mendes client who could maybe have a word in a couple of years to Mm. say we need even more money spent on this squad in in January. Didn't they spend loads of money on this squad? They spent over £100 which uh, is not obvious watching them at the moment. Um, The defending has just fallen off a cliff. I saw uh, Wolves a couple of times in early season. I thought Max Kilman and Nathan Collins could become this kind of unheralded star central defensive combination but they look all at sea now uh the discipline's gone kind of positionally and also you know two red cards in two games uh and yeah they they look a little bit broken so Lopetegui has got a huge job on his hands I don't know what difference it makes that he he's turned them down a few years ago and seemingly turned down a couple of weeks ago but uh he's gonna have to hit the ground running pretty quickly clearly a manager who will demand respect and you know Steve Davis actually I know really well I, I worked with him at, at Leighton Orient um you know he came in there for for a little while and I think did a, a good job in just trying to steady the ship but I think again those players eventually are, are looking around going right who's going to be the guy to to take us on and I think it's really important from Wolves's point of view to to get that bit of business done uh, a man with plenty of pedigree funny to think back to the last World Cup on the eve of which Lopetegui was the Spain manager, only to be then fired because he was taking over at Real Madrid. Anyway, best of luck with his next challenge. Daniel's about to go off all over Nottingham Forest to Brentford 2. So, Moram and Joby, do you want to get a word in edgeways about uh, Everton's 2-0 defeat by Leicester? Leicester's extraordinary turnaround. Look at this. Three wins in four. They've only conceded one goal in their last five, and that was to Man City. Uh, Yuri Tielemans with another Yuri Tielemans special. Not awarded man of the match, though. Did he catch his post-game interview with James Madison? <laughs> Joe? Yeah, he wasn't He wasn't best pleased, was he? I've got to be honest. I think when you score a goal like mm. that, it should just be handed to you anyway. And another absolute worldie, by the way. I just was watching the goal a month for the, the previous... Uh, and his one against Wolves is up there. They might as well stop the voting now because that was an absolutely outrageous strike. And it's good to see him back to form. You know, clearly someone who, listen, was he affected by transfer talk? You know, was you know nowhere near the form we've seen of him, but he's certainly been back and really good, as have, you know, the, the rest of the Leicester players. And I, I've had a lot of sympathy for Brendan Rodgers. You know, I think when you look at Leicester's lack of recruitment, 
I feel that at times their, their hands have been tied. Um, injuries, again, have, have really affected them. But that man, again, James Madison, he is the reason Tillemans didn't get man in a match, you know, absolutely ran the show. You know, for me, just playing at such a high level, every time he gets the ball, it looks as though he's going to create an opportunity. Everyone around is, is looking for him to, to go and be the man. And he seems to be, you know, really taking that mantle on, really. And he was fantastic again. Uh, a lot of talk around him, you know, with the World Cup looming. Um, so that'd be really interesting to see what happens and, and see whether he, he makes that, that trip or not. Was Tillemans, would he have been unaware that he wasn't going to get the Man of the Match award? Or I mean, I always thought there was something about the body language of where the... Yeah, you think there was genuinely some doubt in his mind. I, I wondered if it was the fact that uh, I think the, the person who presented it said far and away... Uh, the man of the match, or oh, uh, man of the match by a long way. And at this point, Yuri kind of looks off off camera and rolls his eyes and kind of does a, I cannot believe what I'm hearing, uh, Grimace. Yeah, you don't know sometimes. You go in there and you sort of are waiting and there might be mm. two players and, you know, clearly he feels he's had a, a major impact. <laughs> I think he thought James Madison was just there to hand him the, the, the right, trophy, do you right. know what I mean? But uh, <laughs> yeah. obviously didn't work out that way. Everton, meanwhile, failing to score in the fourth match in their last five uh, with Dominic Calvert-Lewin limping off again with what looked like a, a hamstring injury. So problems continue there for Frank Lampard. Uh, also this weekend, there was West Ham 1, uh, Crystal Palace 2 in what's generally dubbed the Joby McEnough derby. Do you have a strong opinion <laughs> on that game, Joby? Um, well, what I can confirm is it's never been classed as the Joby McEnough derby. I don't think <laughs> I've ever heard that uttered um, on the terraces. But listen, obviously, two of my former clubs, mm. um, I've got to give, again, if we're in we're in the, the mood of giving some managers some love, you know, Patrick Vieira certainly, for me, is is in that camp. I think he's done a brilliant job, not just since he's gone in, but, but this season as well. He's really freshened it up and... Really good to see Michael Elise get on the score sheet. A really talented player. I saw a lot of him coming through at Reading. And I think that's the Palace way now. It's going out. It's identifying this young talent, giving them a platform. Eze, another example, someone who came through in the EFL and is having a, a brilliant season after a, a lot of, uh, or big injury last season. Um, and it's just a real freshness. You know, I really enjoy watching Palace play now. I think, you know, from an attacking point of view, and also Wilf Saha, who I don't think gets the credit he deserves for, you know, his longevity, the impact that he continues to make, the goals that he scores. He played up front, you know, against West Ham the other day, versatile as well. Um, so, yeah, I think they're doing really, really well, um, you know, mid-table now, certainly well positioned to go and push on in the second half of the season. Um, so, yeah, I'm very much in the uh, Patrick Vieira fan club at the moment. I just always really like this Crystal Palace side, to be honest. It's just been so refreshing to see. And it's my favourite thing about this Crystal Palace side is just how impressive they are at executing moves, especially when pressured. And really just, it's a really young side as well. And just the talent that they have picked up over the last season, how different it's been to before under Warhurston. So really fun side. That That's basically my strong opinion. Okay. Uh, West Ham, meanwhile, drifting further down the table, currently level on points with Everton and Leicester. Chris Palace, huge entertainers on the field. Off it, a little bit more challenging. I don't know if you caught Michael Ollis's uh, post-game interview. Talk us through it. Uh, through what the goal. Mm. Uh, I think Wolf passed me the ball. Shot, scored. <laughs> <laughs> nice and brief. But it, it, was a, it was a moment that, that captured the game, that won the game. And what's the feeling like when the ball does hit the back of the net? It was a good feeling. Do you feel you deserved it overall? Yeah. Yeah, I've got to be honest. I, I love him as a player on the pitch, um, but I think he does need a little bit work on his interview technique. It was a real tough job for someone who has started doing a few interviews. That would have been my worst nightmare. Right. I mean, one-word answers. You well, know, simple how is it question was, can you describe Great. the goal? Well, uh, Zaha passed me the ball and I scored. Pause. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was hard work. So out uh, to the Crystal Palace media team, if anyone's yeah. listening, um, bit of work to do there, Rafi. Went to the Harland School of Interviews. <laughs> yeah, very much so, very much so. Uh, Forest two, Brentford two. Penalty rage, Daniel. Penalty rage. Yeah, probably regret, maybe slight bitterness. Mm -hmm. uh, 
You've got to feel I, I hard think, done by after that, though. Yeah, I think so. I think I think the the, the problem as a attempted neutral is is when these things kind of happen in repetition, and you feel like all of them were basically our subjective decisions and probably could have gone either way and they all don't go for you. That's when you kind of feel like, ugh, this is not meant to be. Mm. And and I, I I really feel for Dean Henderson because I think that, that changed the game for Forrest because I think he does get a touch on the ball and I think that probably is therefore enough for it not to be a penalty. And I think that is what causes the second goal for Brentford because a long ball comes over the top, the central defenders leave it, which they probably shouldn't have done um, but they assume that Henderson will be mopping up behind, which is what's meant to happen. But I think because of the incident in the first half where Henderson's out of goal to another ball over the top and concedes a penalty and gets booked, I think he's too scared to come out and, and get close to, to the same player for fear of doing exactly the same and feeling very stupid and being sent off, which means he then comes kind of into no man's land and gets lobbed. Forrest were by far the better team, although they had to be given that Brentford didn't have even Tony. There's just a theme of their season now. They've they've played Aston Villa at home, Bournemouth at home, Fulham at home, Brentford at home, Everton away, and they've taken leads in all of those games and not won any of them. And you cannot be that generous as a promoted side in the Premier League. It's still only three points from safety, Daniel. Yeah, they're still they are still in touch, and mm. and it does. It's very odd, as you know. I'm obviously friends with a lot of Forest fans, and it's it feels like a sort of groundhog week where you say, well, that will be a good point if we win next week. Well, that's not mm. a bad result if we win next week, and. Look, they just need to get through the World Cup and have the second pre-season, although, as Joby's mentioned, there's a lot of managers saying that um, in right. the Premier League at the moment. Uh, and, yeah, hope that there are three worst clubs. OK. Well, next weekend, that, that next match of which you speak, that's at home to Crystal Palace. Michael Lawler says Crystal Palace. All right. That's been a uh, broad-ranging uh, romp through the Premier League weekend. Uh, anything else you wanted to add to all of that, Moran, Joby, Daniel? Well, should we leave the listener to get on with their busy, busy day? Exciting news ahead of us. The uh, World Cup squads, the Europa League and Champions League draws as well. And we'll be back on Tuesday, reflecting on as much of that as possible, as well as that big weekend around Europe, with the Totally Football Show European edition. For now, though, many, many thanks to Joby and Daniel and Maram and producer Charlie and you, listener, for being with us today. Catch you maybe on Tuesday or on Thursday. And here's a little clip from Away From Home. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. Can, can can you hear me okay? Yes, yes, yeah. of course. You can ask ask question. I try to answer. Sure. So, so I suppose to, just to begin, can you explain the past couple of days how how you are, and also if your family is okay? First of all. Yes. Uh, in in the morning of twenty uh, fourth of of the February, we walked up after the uh, uh, sounds of bombs. And uh, went to basement. This is the captain of Ukrainian football club Shakhtar Donetsk. His name is Taras Stepanenko, and he's one of the most famous footballers in his country. He was born before the collapse of the Soviet Union. He played over 70 times for Ukraine, and he's been with his club since 2010. I called him as war broke out to learn what was happening firsthand. Multiple attacks on cities right across uh, the country. Uh, the foreign minister, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, uh, has, has just tweeted that uh, the country is under full-scale invasion uh, by Russia. I have a wife and three sons, one uh, seven years, one eight and one four. Okay. What do you tell them? Uh, my 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 wife scared so much. And we we started to read news, but my my son, they I think they uh, they don't uh, understand clearly what happened. Now 
Stepanenko's life changed, like so many other Ukrainians did when Russia invaded the country in early 2022. But six months on, unlike most men his age, he's fortunate enough to do his normal job again, to play football and to play in the Champions League, where the best teams from across the continent face off to be crowned kings of Europe. For Ukraine, football is more than a sport now. It's a unifier. It's a statement to the world that they are strong. And Shakhtar Donetsk is the embodiment of that sentiment. We are showing to all the world that, uh, that uh, we are still alive. Nothing cannot kill us. And we are in the war for 2014. It will be difficult to play, but we must play. Unfortunately, we are thinking just about Ukraine now. And uh, if this fucking bastard from Russia thinks that we will stop to play because of that, we will not stop to play. We'll play and we will win. For The Athletic, I'm Adam Crafton. Over the course of this series, I'll be tracking Shakhtar's unique football journey as they navigate their way through football's toughest contest. All whilst there's a brutal war raging on their doorstep, forcing them out of their own country. You didn't sleep, you, you cannot sleep. Three days, three days without sleep. I'm proud that I'm part of this team, of this club. And today we can be proud because this victory is, is for Ukrainian people, for Ukrainian citizens. It's not only about football now, it's about to show that, uh, to show that we are fighting, that we are still alive. <laughs> This is Away From Home, episode one, We Believe in Miracles. The Athletic.